Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. In today's episode, you meet Monique L. Nelson. Monique is Chair and Chief Executive Officer of UWG, the country's longest-standing multicultural marketing agency. She took the helm of the agency in May of 2012 when founder and advertising pioneer Byron Lewis retired. Headquartered in Brooklyn with offices in Detroit, Atlanta, and Miami, UWG maintains a list of esteemed clients. Today, this list includes Ford Motor Company, Colgate-Palmolive, The Home Depot, Bacardi USA, and Coca-Cola. As one of the country's leading multicultural agencies, UWG services its clients with general market, Black, Hispanic, Asian, and LGBT marketing and advertising, digital and traditional advertising, consumer insight, public relations, consumer health communications, and cultural fluency consulting. Prior to joining UWG, Ms. Nelson was the global lead for entertainment marketing at Motorola, where she ensured that the technology giants' entertainment and music strategies and alliances lived up to their promise as results-driven strategic marketing weapons worldwide. Today, her leadership extends beyond her C-suite at UWG. She sits on the Advertising Week Global Board, Adweek Diversity and Inclusion Council, the Brandeis Board of Trustees, the Eagle Academy Board, as well as the New York Advisory Board for the Posse Foundation, of which she is an alumni, as am I. She is a participant in the ANA's Alliance for Inclusive and Multicultural Marketing. Miss Nelson continues to give back to her undergraduate alma mater um, by supporting the Vanderbilt on Madison Avenue Internship Program. She is also a member of the Brooklyn chapter of Lynx Incorporated. Ms. Nelson has an MBA in International Marketing and Finance from Kelsat Graduate School of Business at DePaul University and a Bachelor of Science degree in Human Organizational Development from Vanderbilt University. I have had the pleasure of knowing Monique for almost 20 years now at this point, as I mentioned. Um, I'm also an alumna of the Posse Foundation and I've always been impressed by um, her level of focus, her directness, her um, ability to see well beyond where she currently is. Um, As someone who I consider a mentor from afar, um, I've definitely watched her moves and and tried to take gems, uh, which is why I thought it was important to share her with you. So as always, grab your I Choose the Ladder notebook, your favorite beverage, and get ready to get to work. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year. And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth, and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. 
To learn more about the Review Planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com and pre-order yours today. Hi, Monique. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, I know I have been harassing you for like two years because I'm like, people need to know her, right? I've no, I've had the pleasure of knowing you since I was like 18. Um, and just the impact of the work that you have done and how your company has grown and how you have grown, like people need to know everything about this woman. So thank you. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sorry it's taken us this long. So it's <laughs> Um, So let's start. um, I know a bit of your story, but let's start with one. You are the CEO of a corporation right now. Um, So there's that a black woman who's heading up a a corporation that's not a new corporation that has been around for a really long time. Um, But before that, like, how did you end up in corporate? Right. Because I know you worked for other companies before. So like your first corporate job, how did that happen? Um, so funny enough, Vanderbilt University, right? I uh, went to the career center and took a assessment test. When I was a senior in college, I still didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I really didn't. So I took those assessment tests and it said, oh, you probably be great in sales and marketing. So I said, all right, let me go look for a sales and marketing job because I had you know, parents that were super awesome, but basically said, after your four years, you are off payroll. So I knew I get a real job and uh, necessarily didn't want to come back to New York and be a starving artist. So basically went and uh, interviewed with a bunch of companies for sales and marketing. And one of the companies was international paper and really intriguing. Like you wouldn't think that, you know, a manufacturing company, paper company would um, pique my interest. But one of the things that was really key was that they were doing this manager trainee program. Mm. I did know I wanted to do was for whatever reason I knew I wanted to run my own thing I knew I at some point I wanted to be an entrepreneur and how are you going to do that without management so Mm. that much I did know okay so when I went to the interview for international paper you know they had that informational session and it was really interesting they said you know what if you join us you will have to do a time in an undesirable location at some point because you would need to experience being at a paper mill. And mm-hmm. a paper mill is not sexy. It's not super, you know, urban because it's stinky. Like there's just all sorts of things about going to a paper mill uh, that aren't, you know, top of mind and really desirable. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I did was said, you know what? This sounds really cool. I'm going to get a lot of uh, support education because they have this amazing training program and honestly I said you know what why not start my undesirable location now Mm. and the other part was I could get a decent salary and I wouldn't have to come home Mm. so I interviewed with them in Kakana Wisconsin which is a suburb of Green Bay I've never even heard of Kakana, Wisconsin. I'm from Chicago. You're from Chicago, right? Kakana, Wisconsin. It's a suburb of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And it's a paper, you know, paper mill town. And I went up there and interviewed in April. As you can imagine, it was going to (laughs) snow. So they were like hustling me through my uh, my interviews before the snow came. Mm -hmm. And they offered me the job. Mm. And I started working at International Paper in Kakana, Wisconsin, a place called Nicolet. And it was a specialty paper uh, company. And 
as you know, new kid, I got all of the super cool throwaway products. So I sold the back of the post-it note, the part that says post-it, post-it, post-it. I sold ream wrap, which is the paper that goes around the paper that you put in the copy machine. I sold the Reese's peanut butter cup paper that you throw away. Yeah, that was my thing. So thinking back to that time, because I know Wisconsin, like, was there a lot of diversity in your role? Like, is that, did you go and have like a tribe of people or was it just you? It was that I knew of in that time, there were 40 Black families that lived in the area year round. As you can imagine, we had an influx of Black folks that would come when the team was playing. So when the Packers were playing, mm. you, had, you had a a flurry is 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 really an exaggeration, but you had a lot more Black people, right? Like I could go to the store and I would see folks and uh, that would be an interesting time. But then certainly once the season was over, they would flee back to their, you know, wonderful Atlantas and Houstons and Miamis of the world and they would leave. So for the those of us that were still there, it was probably about 40 that I knew of. I remember having a party and everyone came and the cops came and closed my party down because I think I had every Black person in Green Bay at my house. Oh my gosh. So um, how do you then deal with, because I think this is when I talk to women about job opportunities, right? There's this fear of ending up in like a cocoon and where you are by, well, not by yourself actually, like literally, but in all essence, if you're from a major city like a New York or a Jersey, Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, to then go to a cocoon where you will not have the, the, the same kind of diversity, a lot of times that's a turnoff, especially when people are younger in their careers. So how did you rationalize making that decision? Especially back then where like, yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, for me, I've, I can honestly say I, I don't mind an adventure and I have truly, uh, amazing parents. And I remember my mother saying to me, you know, you can live in hell for two years. Like it'll, it'll go faster than you think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the first things I did, and the one thing that I have to give, um, uh, international cr- uh, paper credit for they did introduce me to a colleague that was black, that was willing to spend time with me. And I, I ended up spending time with he and his wife um, as I, you know, just kind of got there and they really did surround me. And, you know, then I got to meeting some other folks in the organization. Mm-hmm. There was a black woman that worked in finance and we became fast friends and she was from Chicago. So as you can imagine, uh, when it kind of came time to get this hair done, we would, you know, get in the car and I, she, her, her parents would let me, you know, spend the night, you know, stay the weekend at, at her parents' home. And I would go and get my hair done. And, you know, we'd go to the, you know, 50 yard line and, you know, <laughs> we'd get our party on and then we'd, you know, head on back <laughs> to Green Bay, um, you know, on a Sunday night or, or sometimes on a Monday morning mm. and pop into work. So where, you know, culture wasn't, you know, you had to kind of plan for it to kind of get yourself fed, to then be able to go back uh, into an environment that may not feel as, as comfortable. But, you know, I was a salesperson. So the other part was I was on the road a lot. I was mm-hmm. gone more than I was in, right? To be a good salesperson, you're not sitting at your desk, mm-hmm. um, especially in those days. So I was gone 65, maybe 70% of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I got a 
if I was coming out to see a client out east, I would, you know, jump to New York for the weekend and, you know, see my friends and then jump back. And then ultimately, you know, I, I, I found I got a boyfriend and he was in Chicago. Mm. So just ended up spending a great deal of time there on weekends. And, you know, again, oh, 24 months, right? Mm-hmm. It was over in a flash. And uh, once I did that, I ended up moving to Chicago mm. with, uh, with International Paper after those two years with Expedex. I worked in that for about six to nine months, was able to go to a dinner um, and met a gentleman who was starting the Global Brand Strategy group at Motorola. He then said, hey, you do marketing, don't you? And I said, yes, I sure do. And he said, well, you know, we're looking for some folks to, you know, come on the global brand strategy team. Would you be open to interviewing? I did. I got the job and that started that seven year journey with Motorola and uh, in, in a plethora of roles, everything from, you know, building, you know, brands from their core, uh, doing sub-branding work, uh, consumer insights. Uh, and then I took a role that people thought I was cuckoo to take. I, you know, went over to the product line management side of the world and became the EA uh, to the senior vice president of product line management and really understood how that sausage was made. I spent a lot of time with him, with the CEO of Motorola. I spent a lot of time at board meetings and really, you know, sitting in that seat and not saying much, but taking in everything. Mm. So let's, let's go back really quickly to Wisconsin. So looking back now with all of the wisdom and all of the, everything that you know that it takes to survive in corporate and building a business or growing a business, um, what are, is there anything that you learned during that time that still serves you now? Oh yeah. That was when I really realized that marketing was my thing. Mm. My boss gave me an edict to say, you've got to sell more brown paper to 3M. I had no concept of what that was. I just sold them two tons. And if you know what two tons of paper looks like, and remember the post-it was only three by three at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, they've got enough paper. <laughs> <laughs> like how much more do you want? Like, you know, it's, yeah, it's three by three. Like, what are you talking about? And uh, he said, listen, we've got to come up with something, right? Because our, you know, your goals never go down, right? Like you're never talking about, you know, selling less, <laughs> you're always trying to sell more. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you to go in and I sat with the marketing lead of Nicolay at the time. And gosh, I, I really do need to find her name because uh, she changed my life in a way that she probably has no concept. But I remember us sitting down and I said, you know, I've got this, I've got to sell more and I've got to figure out how I do this. And she said, well, let's brainstorm, right? Did a series of brainstorms and she started making some calls. And next thing we knew, we were in a meeting with Spring Hill and Hammer Mill. And those were other companies within international paper. Mm. And they sold colors. So all of a sudden, we were like, oh my gosh, we'll go to 3M, we'll sell more colors, right? Because it's like yellow's tapped out. Uh Let's sell some blue, some pink right? Some lines. All of a sudden I'm selling more brown paper, Mm. right? And that just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, you can really, you can create, you can innovate, Mm -hmm. you can do a line extension. Mm -hmm. And that's when marketing really bit me. And at that point I was hooked. 
I was hooked because it, it, it really took care of both sides of my brain, right? Like I'm really analytical, but then I'm super creative too. Mm-hmm. And I wanted those two things to work. And once I saw that marketing could do that for me, mm-hmm. sold. So I think that more often than not, when people get to that specific crossroad where somebody presents them with a challenge, innovation is not the first thing that they default to. They like, there's a sense of like shock and gloom and like, maybe this isn't for me. So how did you not get to that? Like, is that something that's innate in you? Is that something you grew up learning that like when you hit a challenge or, or something that seems ridiculous or maybe even unfair, it's like, I just sold all this paper. What do you mean? I got to sell more paper or like your boss is now demanding way more of you than you feel like, um, is justified or warranted. A lot of times people get complacent or they'll get, um, they'll feel down. Like what I'm doing isn't good enough or I'm not good enough. So how did you get to a place where it was like, oh, okay, this is a, this is an opportunity for me to rise. And I need to find a creative way to rise as opposed to being like, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, yeah, you know what? Um, that is an awesome question and I've never gotten it before. So I will be honest, but you made me actually think about that. And you know what? I come from two scientists. My father's an engineer. My mother is a uh, biologist. And we lived in a house of hypotheses. Mm, same Try it. that. Try it. See if it works. Right. If you try it this way and it doesn't work, try it another way. It was never give up. Mm, mm. Right. Because life is an experiment. And I think that was always kind of a part of, you know, try it, do the math. Mm. Right. I'd ask a question and, you know, the response of my husband was do the math. Right. Or you think you think that's going to work. Try it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If it did. Look at that. If Mm -hmm. it didn't. Well, why didn't it work? Mm-hmm. never an indictment never you know mm-hmm. but why why not mm-hmm. so I think I did I grew up with with two people that lived in a space of you got to try it to to make sure it works because science mm-hmm. is that right it is the experiment it is the it is the innovation it is that if you don't try you'll never know mm-hmm. and like and I'm not a parent but this is something that I talk to my parent friends about all the time the the fact that we expect adults to know things in adulthood that we didn't let them try as children, right? So for you, there is a, a sense of security because you've been trying things since you were a kid. So you know that nothing super catastrophic is going to happen. So there's a level of confidence in, if I try and it doesn't work, I'll get some data, I can reassess it. But a lot of people don't have that. And so there's a fear mm-hmm. with their careers to try things because for us, for for if you're first generation, you yeah. everything is so seems so permanent right so it's like yeah. oh my god if I do this and it doesn't work I'm I'm, I'm ruined, I'm my right. ruined. but you were raised and like nothing ruins you you get data you reassess and then you which makes sense that you would go from all the things that you did to saying yeah I'll try this EA position right yeah. like to see what happens and then it ended up opening doors doors for you um right. how do you as someone who and I know a little bit I know I know one person that you're going to pick but in terms of mentorship how has mentorship played a role in your career development? And then the second part of that, has it changed as you've gotten more senior? Sure. Uh, yes. Um, mentors, sponsors um, have been integral uh, to me. I have had that kind of presence in my life, most of my life. Mm-hmm. And I guess back to my parents again my mother was always I knew it I knew you're gonna pick your parents because I know how much you love your mom and dad and you talk about them often I'm like she's gonna start with her parents 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my, they probably introduced me to the concept. My mother was very, very good at, you're not going to listen to everything from me. Mm. Right. My mother would tell me, Ooh, your notebook is a mess and you're never going to learn anything as long as it's a mess. And I'm like, Oh girl, whatever. <laughs> and I remember going down to see my aunt and uncle in DC and my cousin that I adore. Cheryl. And I had to bring my homework with me because it was, you know, it was a long weekend, but I had stuff to do. And I'm sitting there doing my homework in on Saturday morning and Cheryl comes in the kitchen and she looks at me and she looks at my notebook and she said, ugh, that notebook really is a mess. <laughs> and I'm talking about, you talk about face on the floor. I mean, oh, tears. Oh, oh. You know, I cleaned up that notebook. <laughs> you know, I never had to worry. <laughs> My mother never had to worry about that notebook again. And what's so interesting is that she said, see, now I told you that you didn't say, you didn't do a damn thing. Cheryl tells you and make me split. Here you she was somebody I respected that I needed her to think of me in that way. Like, oh gosh, how, how can I show up mm. to someone? that I, I, I adore, I love, and I, I want to be like. Mm -hmm. And I've disappointed her in a way that is just, and really so stupid, a, a, a clean notebook? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why am I bucking against a clean notebook? <laughs> right? But, you know, but yeah, it was the annoying parents, right? They always ask you to do something, that you, you know? So they always role modeled the fact that, hey, we need people that believe the same things we believe. Mm -hmm. have the same values but would come at it a little differently mm -hmm. right in a way that I could hear it so you know so they they started it then you know I had a, a godmother by the name of Diane Porter who was a badass black woman who was at the top of her game she was the first black woman to be the head of the Episcopal Church Center so I watched a black woman in power in my high school years and was just in awe of her and she was, you know, a part of my life until, you know, God bless her, she passed um, in 2019, but has just been, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. And she was just a, a North Star for me. I knew I could be it, but I saw her, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I knew if I, I, I saw her sit in that, in that corner office, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I remember going to visit and then I worked for her. I was an intern. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, Posse was, just a, yet another, you know, wonderful space. And, you know, Michael Ainsley, you know, is still just near and dear and, and, and so present in my life and has been, right, since I was 17. So mm -hmm. there's, um, you know, there's those threads. And then, yes, over time, they've had to change. But honestly, probably the things that have changed more have been my sponsors. Mm. Sponsorship changed more, I think, than my mentors. Okay. Um, and why do you think that is? Well, sponsorship is about um, action. So I needed people in the rooms that I wanted to be in. Mm. So at each level, those rooms changed, which mm. means those people in a, lot of, in a lot of ways changed in terms of where they could help position me. 
Mm. So let's talk about sponsorship a little bit, because I think the, the quote is black women are over mentored and under sponsored. Um, and, and I think it's because sponsorship is not necessarily a thing that you can in the traditional way strategize for, right? Like it, it's, it's a relationship that is very equal parts your sponsor finding you and you being intentional about being where your sponsor can find you. But I think for if you're a first generation or you're new to this corporate thing, it's, it takes a while to figure out that you need it. And by then you've probably already needed that sponsor a couple of times. So for you, if you are advising somebody who's younger, right? And not like young, young, maybe they're middle career, they're at the coordinator, manager, director level, and they're, they're starting to be intentional about sponsorship. How would you recommend they think about it? Well, first and foremost, I would ask you to talk about where do you want to be, right? It's all about the outcome. Do you want to be in a certain position? Would you like a certain job? Right? Like that, that could be it. Like, I remember I wanted a global assignment. So I needed to figure out, well, who's moving the cheese on getting people international assignments, mm-hmm. right? At Motorola, it's like, okay, I've done the, the world thing, but now I want to go and be somewhere, mm-hmm. right? I want to take this in. So it was a matter of, okay, so I'm on the global team, but now I've kind of got to get to somebody who's regional, mm-hmm. right? That would want to accept me into their world. And I got to find somebody that can make that connection. Why was it important for you in that, at that time of your career for a global assignment? Why was that something you wanted? I knew that culture mattered and I wanted to experience the depth of the work that I was doing on a global level locally. Okay. So having, you know, so I had this very broad global role and I'm popping in and out of countries, right? I'm telling people, here's what we're doing at the global level. This is what's happening here. I'm working with the teams around nuancing their, their campaigns. I'm talking to the teams about what's important. Is this translating properly? Does this mean what we think it means? Does it mean the same thing to you in Korea? Does it mean the same thing to you in Brazil? Totally fulfilling. But what I was missing at that point was I'd love to just live in this for a minute. Mm. get a sense of what what that really means like how do I go to work every day like what are these people experiencing on a day-to-day basis because again when you're just dropping in it's all good yeah yeah but I'm not really getting the richness Mm. of this culture without kind of living in it Mm -hmm. so it really became I mean I put I really did now thinking back I put a campaign together for myself Mm. so started to you know show up and, you know, those places as you're talking about, you know, making sure that the global team knew that that's what I wanted, right? The people that saw me work, hey, if there's an assignment, I'd like to take one in a, in a region, um, letting that be known. And then continuing to say it uh, to anybody that would listen uh, while doing the work that I needed to get done to make sure that when that reco came, that I had all of the stuff, all the tools in my toolkit to take it with. That part, that, that let's not gloss over that part. You said you campaign while you did the work. I think Correct. a lot of the times we campaign and it's to the detriment of the quality of our work. And so then when the opportunity comes along and because we've been campaigning, if we don't get it, there are, there's like feelings that get hurt. So it's around the, like, you can't have one without the other. And I, and I know that I say this all the time, I choose a lot of folks get, really sick of hearing this, 
but the quality and consistency of the quality of your work makes a huge difference because it allows your sponsors to be able to advocate for you when those when you are not present in those rooms. If you you haven't delivered and your sponsor goes behind closed doors, they're not going to leverage the relationships that they've spent years building on a shaky foundation. And I think that sometimes it comes, and there are times where people are not advocating for people, but oftentimes it's that they don't have, they don't feel like they have enough to make this one of the battles that they want to fight. That's your exact decisions about you are made in rooms without you. Mm -hmm. And And that have to understand that. Right. And and it's, and it's hard because like you talked about cultural a little bit. I think that for black women, it's a, you know, people say, bring your authentic self to work. And it's like, well, they're not talking about us. Right. And so there's a level of protection that we have around ourselves that sometimes prevent us from being able to build the, the kinds of relationships that then yield those types of opportunities. So when you think about relationship building, whether it's like for you wanting something or someone who is going to need to leverage you at some point, how do you approach that? I think you have to do it just like any other relationship. You get started, right? You do the quick 15 minutes. Hey, can I get 15 minutes on your calendar just to kind of, you know, pick your brain or, you know, I'm thinking about some things, you know, start to cultivate a true relationship, not transaction, a relationship. I'd like to learn a little bit more about your job, what you do every day. Mm-hmm. I would look to be, you know, and find the people that, and everybody won't say yes, right? I put a lot, you know, I put a lot out there, right? There was some people, there were people that I desired to get to know better and they had no desire to get to know me in that way. Okay, I've got to move on. I got to go to the next person, Mm -hmm. right? How do you not take something like that personal? Because I know that like, so I'm the type of person when I send an email, I'm anxious until there's a response and then the response comes and I don't want to open it because I don't want to know what they've said, right? Because it, and it's, it's crazy. I remember I was telling me my mentor, like before when we were early on in the relationship, I wanted a meeting on his calendar. He's a very busy man. And so I spent like an hour and a half crafting this three sentence, like a, it was like a paragraph, right? And I sent it and he responded immediately and I didn't open it for like an hour. And then when I opened it, he responded with like three words, like, sure, when are you in the city? I was like, that's all you got to say? You don't know what the turmoil I went through to put that email together. All you got to say is, when am I in the city? What, what is wrong with you? Like, I was so offended. And it's like, he didn't go through that anguish. He was like, yeah, you want to meet? When are you going to be in the city? But it blew my mind that like, he was not as, not as you, what? Yeah, you, you thought that you had to go through this gauntlet and, go to this person, do that. Do yeah, no. And it was super easy and it was super like, sure. Listen, the one thing, that, yeah. Oh yeah. No, don't beat yourself up again. I, I try not, I'm not offended. Maybe it's because I went to LaGuardia. Maybe because I auditioned and people were like, nope, next. Right. Like there's this, and you got to kind of move on. You got to, Hey, what am I going to do? And cry every time somebody goes, you're not the one. Mm. right I always I mean listen go back to when you liked the boy and he didn't like you what did you do hopefully you moved on to somebody that you know did like you you know stalk their Facebook page stalk their Instagram that's what they do these days they I know, <laughs> but back then there was none of that <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about um okay so you're at the place now where before like the tables have kind of turned right you are 
for lack of a better, like you are the person who sets culture or you are the head of culture setting within an organization. Well, first, well, how did you decide? Cause you said you always wanted to, you knew you always wanted to be an entrepreneur. How did you know when it was time to make that transition? Huh. How did I know? Um, the opportunity kept bringing itself to me. So I ignored it. I ignored the, the knock on the door early on because I honestly, not unlike many people, was like, I don't know. I think I'm a little young for this. Mm. I don't know. Uh, am I really ready? Have I done everything that's going to really prepare me to be this mm. uber person that everybody, you know, like the person that I knew was a CEO, mm -hmm. to your point, I was like, is that, am I that already? Mm -hmm. So the doubt was there, right? So that I had a lot of self-doubt at, at the, the onset because I had been, you know, I guess the universe or, or the, the ether kind of tells you, oh no, you got to put this much time in, mm -hmm. right? Like had I really put all my time in mm -hmm. to do this at this juncture? And remember, I started at Uniworld as an account director and a branded entertainment integration person. Mm -hmm. I had never worked in an advertising agency before. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, three years later, right? So this is 2010. I'm going, well, I don't know. I'm not sure, but the knock got louder to the point where the knock became the doorbell. Mm -hmm. Then the doorbell was like, the door fell. And it was like, hey, <laughs> now, now mm. and it was and once I kind of leaned into it and said fear be damned right like you're going to be scared of course you're going to be scared you don't know anything at this particular juncture but why not mm. right if you don't try you can for sure guarantee ain't nothing gonna happen so I think we'll t we'll get back to the culture part uh question but so you just said something like if you don't try you just never know right I think a lot of times, especially at that level, when you make a mistake, it's not just like you and your team, like your small little group that department that knows. And the fear of that public, not humiliation, but the public eyes on um, on you or on the result or on whatever happened usually makes people risk averse, right? So people are not as innovative. They're not as creative they, because they want to avoid making mistakes in such a public forum, but you've been wired to be innovative and take risks. So how are you, how do you manage the two? Um, one, um, you're never as famous as you think you are. Ooh, yeah. let, let me write that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, once you realize that, it's um, it's super easy uh, at that point. You know, it's funny the your your universe is just your universe, mm. and if you have surrounded yourself with people that lift you up, people that support you, people that challenge you in good ways, then failure is never a problem because you know what your 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 group of, you know, your celebrity crew is down for you no matter how you show, no mm. matter what you do. Mm. Right? Mm. So the fear really is of the folks that aren't for you anyway. And who cares? Who cares about the people that ain't for you? 
Because those are the only people that are, that are out to hurt you or hurt your feelings or make you feel bad about what you didn't do well. And ain't nobody doing everything well all the time. Show me that person and I'm ready to follow. But we're all fallible. We all have quirks and crazy moments and you know uh oh right like that was not good mm-hmm. i've got to try that again mm-hmm. so once you get over yourself and again it's usually you know our own insides telling us that we're too good for that mm. and we're not too good for anything mm. i still mop my floors <laughs> i still you know do the work mm. you got to do the work all the time it's just different work yeah Um, And as someone who now you get to, before you worked in cultures that were already established before you got there and you had to figure out how do I fit into this culture? As someone who's now charged with creating culture and and shifting culture maybe at times based on the the needs of the work that you're doing and the the people that you serve, how do you approach that? Especially, because I know that you have, your company is a lot more diverse than most companies that exist, right? And so- thinking about that for that population, how do you think about culture? So I, I actually needed a lot of help in this space. Um, so I'll be you know, really honest, once I you know, bought Uniworld and assumed the helm and thought that that was the hard part, <laughs> I then got in the seat and was like, uh-oh, this company has been um, a part of someone else's life for 42 years. Mm-hmm. He was a male, um, he was you know, mature, Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was his, mm-hmm. right? He founded it. Mm-hmm. So now it was like, how do I now keep the soul, but it has to now become me, mm-hmm. right? It has to feel like me. It has to uh, translate the things that I think are important and it has to now change. Mm-hmm. So I actually got an organization to come in and help me build culture. And it was a company called the Handel Group. And they have a methodology that resonated really strongly with me for the very reason you just talked about because of the you know, inclusive nature of our organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, the primary piece of our culture that had to be established and had to be unwavering was honesty and integrity. Mm-hmm. I had to build an honest culture that mirrored my values and then ultimately drove the organization to be its best self. Because for our communities in particular, the lies are the part that's killed us. Mm. So I had to make sure that everyone knew that they could be honest in our culture, that they could have hard conversations with no ramifications Mm-hmm. that their voices could be heard and that there was a methodology to do that mm-hmm. and that our processes would reinforce that at every level, that accountability was important, that your actions had consequences. Mm-hmm. Because to your point, right, we can't, you know, we're all about, you know, exploring, but we got guardrails on all of that exploration. Got mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. right? Because we are in the business of making money, (laughs) right? This is a business. Mm -hmm. So there are protocols, there are processes, there are rules of engagement that our clients require. Mm. But we had to figure out what did that look like and how do we express ourselves in a way that allows for that beautiful work to come out because with innovation and different points of view, everybody's not going to agree. But I need all of that to show up in in a 
organized fashion. Mm-hmm. So as a black woman CEO, are there things or hurdles that you feel like you've had to go through or jump through or figure out that maybe your counterparts have no idea about? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, there. I think I definitely uh, probably go up to bat more often than my counterparts uh, mm-hmm. because people are trying to make super duper sure that we can actually do what we say we can do, where I'm sure my colleagues, you know, they are offered that benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. right? The How do you not take that personally? Because like, you have the receipts. Clearly, you've been doing this work. Your your agency has been doing this work. You you put out quality product over and over. So how do you not at a at a point be like, damn, I'm still trying. I still got to prove myself to you. Like, because I think that 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 is the 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 mental fatigue that happens in a lot of times. Even if you're an individual com- uh, contributor in an organization, going up for a promotion, let's say, or going up for a raise, or having a conversation, doing a review, it's the damn. We're talking about this again. Like, how how do you not let that Great one, you have a business and you have employees who you need to be able to feed, right? So that part. But how do you personally not let that like insult you a little bit? Um, you know, there are times when it does, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not even gonna lie to you. There are times when it absolutely does, right? Like there are times when I'm very frustrated. Like, how do you not see the value? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what allows me to sleep every night is again, everybody's not for us, mm-hmm. everybody won't be for us. Mm-hmm. There are other ways to imagine this space and we won't fit all, mm-hmm. but we will get what's for us. Mm-hmm. So I'm very um, clear with my team and my team is very clear with their teams about we're intentional about who we go after. We're very intentional about who we work with and why, mm-hmm. because there are certain things that we think are paramount. And we're one of those agencies that just won't do stuff. Mm. We want to have a strategic reason to believe. We want to move your business in a direction that you too want to move in. Mm -hmm. We don't want to force anybody to do anything. Mm -hmm. We want this to be a part of your DNA. And if you come to us and say, we really don't know, and we are ready to learn, then that's all we ask for. Whether we start at 101 or 301. Mm -hmm. You could be a freshman or a junior in this process. We don't mind. But what we do want to make sure that everybody's comfortable with is that we have a way to do things Mm -hmm. and we have a methodology and we have data and we're going to bring that to you in the best way we know how. Mm -hmm. And if that's the relationship you want to be in, then we're the agency for you. Mm -hmm. If not, then we know pretty quickly, right? You're going to say, oh, can you do something for us? Lickety split. Or can you just do this? No, we're not a just do. Mm -hmm. That's not how we show up. So we kind of know who's for us and we know who's not for us. Mm -hmm. And we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. And then, so thinking back to, you are a very direct communicator. A lot of times that can be like, oh, she's aggressive. Oh, she's angry. Oh, she's all of those things. Do you factor that into your communication style at all? Has it changed? Um, because I, I think that, you know, the, the narrative or the, the suggestion is that, that people have to change things that are like natural to them, um, completely change those things, troubles people. And so how do you think about that? I'm a dead set against that. I, I, think, <laughs> I think it's, it's so hard. It takes so much time and effort. And, um, and when I tried it, I lost my hair. 
Mm. Right. Like I, I remember having alopecia, right. And I would, you know, lose hair, like just huge globs of hair just got, and it was because I was trying to be something I wasn't or trying to be a bunch of things to a bunch of people. And it was wearing me the hell out. And I, I just, I remember going, what is wrong? Mm-hmm. Right. Like I'm a generally healthy person. And it was because I was lying, right? I was lying to myself. I was lying to the people around me trying to be something that I wasn't. And once I kind of said, this taking up way too much time <laughs> and effort and energy, and why, sh- why shouldn't I just be comfortable being Mo? Why can't I just be me inside, outside, daytime, nighttime? It doesn't mean I don't nuance because I'm talking to a certain group of people, right? It's not that I, you know, I, I do speak differently when, when I'm with my friends. They're my friends, right? Then I do to my, my clients, right? Who aren't my friends per se, right? But we have a working relationship. It only goes but so far and that's okay too, mm-hmm. right? Or if I'm speaking to a group of lawyers versus a group of high school students, yes, I change the content. Both of those probably won't like the same thing or the same delivery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my directness will change by audience, but you see the same me <laughs> mm-hmm. everywhere and it's working just fine. Mm. So one of the things that people say is like, I want to show up as my authentic self. How do you as Monique know when you are showing up as your authentic self? Like, What does that look like to you? You know what? It just feels so good. Mm. I, there's something, there's just that, that warm kind of, you know, when you, you know, when you like win your race or, you know, you get that, uh, your favorite meal, um, you watch your favorite movie, you know, you get that hug. Mm-hmm. There's just something about that moment, right? Especially when it's like a pressure moment, right? Like you got to give a talk or, you know, you're doing a pitch or you're, you know, you're interviewing, right? Like there's something that comes with like, man, I killed it. Mm -hmm. I know it, I can feel it, Mm -hmm. right? You know, when you win, there's just something about like, that was everything and they got what I was putting out, Mm -hmm. right? Like old school, you know, they were picking up what I was putting down and you just (laughs) know it, right? Like there's just something about that energy that you're just like, wow. And then that's the one that you want to chase. Mm. right like that's that feeling that you want to chase every time is that moment that you were like oh I was just all in my zone mm-hmm. and for me that's preparation because I'm a work hard right I wasn't a super bright like you know I see it once and I got it mm-hmm. I was one of those people that had to read it write it mm-hmm. and then say it mm-hmm. right and then I had to say it write it and read it now if I could do that I had it yeah. That took a lot of work, right? My, my reading was, I wasn't a speed reader, so I read relatively slowly, mm. right? And then I had to kind of go back and write my notes and make sure that I really understood the concepts. And then, you know, my oral is my strength. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then I, I would say it. Mm-hmm. And if I could articulate it, and then ultimately for, for many and, and for me not to teach it, if I can do that, then I got it. Mm. So I learned how to learn. I learned how I learned and I continue to utilize those things to move myself forward Mm -hmm. so that my authenticity is always steeped in my version of preparation. Mm. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Because I think now we've reduced authenticity to like physical manifestations of like, I, I'm my authentic self when I can wear braids and all like, but I think it's so much more than that. Like it, it's a, it's an inner work um, that for whatever reason we've reduced to some physicalities or some like the physical representation of ourselves. So just interested to see how, how you think about that. Um, oh yeah. I never even talked about that. <laughs> But because I don't think that that's what it is, right? Because a lot of times people are like, well, can I wear my locks to work? Or can I do all of these things? And it's like, well, a lot of that comes from, yes, knowing the culture that you signed up to be a part of, right? If you you want, you took a job in an environment where you knew that they still wore stockings to work, right? Like, so being being in tune with your inner self to be like, hey, this who I is who I am aligned with what they, what they are, right? And being able to answer that question. And I think it's all of it, but it starts on the, and the inside first and us being comfortable and being aware of what our true nature is. Like you talked about that feeling of, yes, I'm aligned right now, as opposed to, yes, they're paying me a lot of money. So I'm going to pretend like I can be misaligned and then be sick in six months because like it's not sustainable. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the one thing that still blows my mind that high achieving black women deal with is imposter syndrome, right? I've interviewed maybe 70 women for this podcast and maybe three of them had said that it, it wasn't a, a major issue. Um, so when you think about imposter syndrome, is it something that you've had to deal with? And if so, how have you dealt with it? Hmm. Um, I would probably say early, early on when I, when I bought the agency, you know, when you became a CEO on paper, but you're not a CEO on the inside. Hmm. Um, you know, it's like, it said it. But remember, I just woke up. It was just yesterday that I wasn't. Mm, and now right? today you are. What does that mean? Mm. Like, what does that really, really mean? And that was a moment of absolute terror <laughs> and fear because I still had to go meet clients mm -hmm. as this new person that I really wasn't sure what that was, right? And you were young. <laughs> Yeah, and I was young, and I was just like, "Oh boy, what what does this really mean?" Mm. Uh, so yeah, it was it was tough because it was kind of reconciling, you know, even to your previous question, you know, the the authenticity when it really is just a title change, mm -hmm. right? Like it was a title change and a uh, responsibility change. Yes, that's a, a okay. level of responsibility, just like a hundred x. <laughs> right. Like all of a sudden I was, you know, getting a check. Now I'm signing the checks and it really is all on me. Right. Like there's nowhere else to pass that buck. Right. Like I am the final, <laughs> the final, final, final. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? And, and how am I going to utilize this new space and place that I now occupy? Mm -hmm. So I, um, you know, yeah, imposter for a little while, for sure, because I just showed up and, you know, figured out, hey, I got um, a lot of coaching. Mm. Um, I, I employed a coach that I, I still utilize to this day. And she is also the group that we work with for the organization. So, mm. you know, me and the organization kind of got well together. <laughs> right. And, um, and, you know, it was, she made it so okay for me to explore the fear and explore 
what those obstacles I was putting in front of myself, right? Because imposter syndrome is, is only you. Mm-hmm. No one knows that you're not doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Unless it's, you know, something you know, silly. Mm-hmm. But people can tell if you're, if you're not comfortable, then they're not comfortable. So it's kind of like don't know why they just know something's off. Like they, they can't put it into words. You can't put it into words, but like the energy is just off. And people are like, yeah, I'm going to walk away from this. I don't know why I'm walking away from this, but some just doesn't feel right. Yeah. It's like a repellent. Yep. 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 Um, so last question before the lightning round. Um, I know that you are a high achiever. I know that you are really driven. Um, but I also know that you are a family person and, and you have your own interests and you have, so how do you balance um, and this is a selfish question. How do you balance ambition with life, right? Like how do you, and then how do you make sure that you as Monique, the individual doesn't get swallowed up by all of it? Oh, wow. Uh, prioritization on a regular basis. Uh, for me, I'm a planner. So I actually plan for that family downtime. Mm. I, uh, my husband is in charge of kind of family stuff. So we get together and talk about the times that we're going to take. And he will, you know, put in his two cents about, Hey, here's where I think we want to go. This is what I think we want to do with the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really had to get very, very specific around separating our very high achieving professional lives mm-hmm. and melding the two mm-hmm. because of me being an entrepreneur, I'm never all the way off. So there's degrees of my engagement, Mm. but it is intertwined. It is a part of who I am every day. Um, As you well know, you know, I bought the company in May and then I got married in August. And then the following year I had my first child. And then almost two, two and a half years later, I had my second child. So Mm -hmm. I basically built my life into my work so it is now very much a part of you know my everyday and during the pandemic it's been absolutely beautiful to be in this space with my children Mm -hmm. and spend more time with them than I ever had you know as long as I've ever been with them since I had them Mm. So it's been um, a brilliant moment of, of connecting with them. And then, you know, funny enough, you know, being able to play a little, you know, June Cleaver, um, (laughs) you know, do some of that stuff and be able to explore because I don't have a commute. Right. I can, I can go down and and cook a really cool dinner. uh, Mm -hmm. If, if I have that, that flexibility and that time and really leaning into, to that opportunity as well. So it's just, you know, every week brings a new schedule, but, you know, we try to schedule and, and make sure that we, we build that in. You've got to have it. So did you, and this is, I'm most fascinated by the answer to this question. Did you think about how having a family would impact your personal, your professional life before you had your family? Or was it a, I knew, you knew all along you would have a family and you would just have to figure it out? That is a really good question. Um, I met the guy Hmm. that let me know that I would be able to be all of this Hmm. and have a family. Hmm. So yes and no. If I hadn't met the guy, I wouldn't have had the family. Hmm. 
because I knew that I wasn't, I didn't want motherhood like that. I didn't just want to be somebody's mom. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's some women, you know, they're just like, I have to have a baby. Like it would just, yeah. it doesn't fit me. I never had that feeling. Okay. I never got. That. Yeah. So for me, it was a matter of if I'm going to have a family, I need this partner that's going to rock out with me because while I want it, I want it in this package. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a double piece for me because without him, honestly, and I was married before mm-hmm. with no children. Mm -hmm. So it really did require a certain partner for me to embrace having what I have now. And I'm really pleased that I listened to myself in that regard. And I was talking to my dad about this and he was like, you think you want to marry somebody who's exactly like you and you don't because your family would not survive it. Like you need to marry somebody who balances you out and who because with the level of ambition that you have, the chances that you're going to be the primary care provider is slim to none. And so you need to find, and I was just like, I was insulted a little bit. I was like, wait a minute, hold on. I am a family woman. Like I, and he just rolled his eyes like, girl, (laughs) move around. But I think it's something that we don't think about, right? I think when we approach relationship, especially partnership, it's what they tell you a power couple is supposed to look like. And so you, or what they tell you someone at your level should be and present as, and we don't necessarily think about the day-to-day parts of this whole partnership thing. Um, So I'm always interested to see like if for people who are high achievers, women, especially, if we think about that as it pertains to building our, our family lives. Yeah. And I, and I needed someone to meet me at the ambitious level though. Yeah. I mean, he just, you know, he's like, beyond right like he blows my mind daily mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Bad. <laughs> badass right like you know he's just he's just that dude right I, I love him for it so we meet each other here uh-huh he definitely is like nope this is me this is you yeah we got this right and we have a whole method where we have areas of life we have 12 areas of life that we live in mm-hmm. and each one of us plays a role. Each one of us is a CEO or president, right? We have CEO and president. Mm -hmm. So every part of our lives, you've got control of this. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You can check in with me, but you to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we really got very practical about this is what's important to us. And this is how we can move forward. I don't like fighting. He doesn't like fighting. So we're just going to eliminate those types of challenges so that we can you know, get through this in a way that's joyful and that we can enjoy each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So we're going to go to the lightning round and don't think too much about these questions. It's just literally the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, What's one piece of career advice you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? Uh, Don't be, don't be afraid to talk to anybody. Hmm. What's a career lesson that took you a long time to learn, but made a difference once you learned it? Decisions about you are made in rooms without you. Mm. What's one book that you could read over and over again, and it does not have to be a business book, but just any book? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, You know what I'm reading over and over again? Cast. Mm. And, then, and it's like now I'm, I'm, I'm using it almost like a 
like a Bible. It's crazy. <laughs> Uh, and then the last question is, we all know that decisions about your career are going to be made when you're not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? That I'm thoughtful, um, intentional, and prepared. Mm. And on that, thank you so much, Monique. Ah, oh, missed you. I haven't seen you in so long. Thank you for, for doing this. <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you. Great questions too. I mean, was I right or was I right? Monique is absolutely phenomenal. Um, you all know that I always like to end each episode with three gems that I got from um, the conversation. And so the first one is that you're not as famous as you think. So don't allow your fear of feedback or criticism from people who may not be your supporters in the first place um, to stop you from taking the risks um, that you want to take in order to pursue a career that you want to be living in and working in. The second was the importance of uh, structuring your life and work, right? Moni talked about how uh, she had to change her work schedule and get the additional help that she needed so that she could take care of herself so that her life didn't over like cut it didn't eclipse her work and her work didn't eclipse her life, you know, leaving work a little bit earlier or getting the help at home so that she wouldn't feel so much pressure to, um, to hustle and bustle and keep all the balls that she was juggling in the air. And I think the, the last thing that I took away is that you really can do the things that you want. So Monique discussed getting married, buying a business and having a child all within the same 12 month span. And I think that for most of us, that sounds overwhelming, but she was able to somehow juggle it all, take a maternity leave, even though she had just purchased a company because that was something that was important to her. So as we think about all the things that we want, don't let anyone talk you out of pursuing them with your whole heart. Um, and you can do it. It's hard. It takes work. But from what I gathered, at least for someone who doesn't have a child yet and isn't married yet, um, it gave me a little bit of hope that I can create a family and also be a boss at work. Um, as always, if you want to keep the conversation going, make sure you subscribe to the newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. You can also connect with us on Facebook or on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder. And until next time, thank you for listening.